Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you need a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. Please take a Bible from the pew there in front of you. And, uh, and I'll even go so far as to say this. If you do not have a Bible at home, take that Bible home. You can have it. If you do not have a Bible, as long as you promise, you'll take it home and read it. All right? All right, 1 Corinthians 15. Notice, if you would, in verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing. <clears throat> he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Father, I pray this morning that your word would not return void. And Lord, I pray if there be any soul here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be a life-changing day. That today, they would pass from death into life. So, Father God, my prayer today is that you might use me as a vessel to convey the grace of God, the love of God, to the hearts of these people. Lord, may they be receptive. May you draw them to repentance and faith. For we ask it in the name that's above every name. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today, um, we're going to do things different. Uh, By the way, I I, I was mentioning some of the guys in the back. I I was looking around and kind of scanning the crowd. And by the way, if you're visiting with us today, thank you. Praise the Lord. We're so thankful that you chose to be with us today. Uh, But as I look around, I really don't see anyone in here that is from a, such a great distance that we couldn't see you next week. I'm just saying. I mean, really, you know, because, you know, sometimes Easter you'll have family that comes into town and they drove from a long ways and they're in visiting family. So, but I really, I'm looking around and I think every single one of you are within a certain radius of this church. You could get here. So I'm just trying to encourage you, but I'd love to see you. I'm glad to have you here today. Today we're going to do things different. Normally what we do on Sundays, we're going through a, a book study. And, that, and that's, the way I like, that's the way I like to do things. I like to go through a book at a time. That way I believe the Spirit of God through the Word of God works on you in situations and you don't get that, that did, they, did somebody tell the preacher I was going to be here today? You know, we all get that feeling sometimes, don't we? Especially when the Word of God really hits us. Somebody must have told him I was coming. Look, so when I go through a book study and we're on a verse of Scripture, only God knew. Right? 
And so we need to be open to that, that perhaps this isn't a message from thus saith my neighbor, maybe it's thus saith the Lord. And so, uh, so we go through a book study. Today we're taking a break from that because it is a, a special day that, that we set aside and uh, honor our risen Lord and Savior. And as believers, we should set aside that every day. But we know that on this Sunday service, there is something special about it. So today I want to I hit on some things. One, one of the things that those of you that are here part of this church, you know this about me. I love the ministry of apologetics. Now, for those of you who don't know that term, that doesn't mean I love to go around and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, uh, it's from 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Be able to give a defense for what you believe. Because look, I will tell you, I do not want you to believe Christianity just because your mama or your daddy taught you, raised you as a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. No more than being in a garage makes you a car. You follow me? Just because you're in church and just because you sit in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Alright? I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Because I believe the Christian faith is grounded in facts. So that it doesn't just stay head knowledge, but it is so overwhelming, the evidence, that you are compelled as you are drawn by the Spirit of God to believe these facts, that you trust these facts from the heart. That the life is truly transformed because of the life-changing message of Jesus Christ and who He is. Somebody said the difference between heaven and hell... It's about 18 inches. I'm going to give you a lot of facts today about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe the evidence, if you will be open and listen and receive the evidence today, I believe it is so overwhelming for you to walk out of these doors today and deny what you've been presented is simply a hardening of your heart or a hardening of your head. So... This is a little different. This is a different service this morning. But I trust and pray that you will allow the Spirit of God to use the evidence and the Word of God to convict you and bring you to a point of decision. With that said, I will probably do a lot of standing to the side and reading. Um, uh, We haven't got our multi-million dollar system in yet. I can just look at the pulpit and see what's behind me. All right, facts. The resurrection... Of Jesus Christ. Why is the resurrection important? You know, why is it important? I'm going to go through these pretty quick because I've got almost 50 slides. (laughs) And uh, hey, we started early. Uh, So I'm going to go through them pretty quick. Y'all hang tight. First off, it's foundational. By the way, if you haven't picked up on this yet, I'll clue you in. Facts. F-A-C-T-S. There's your outline. Okay? Hopefully you'll be able to remember some of these things. The F is foundational. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so important? It's foundational to Christianity. If Christ is not risen, our hope's in vain. If He did not die upon that cross, was buried, and three days later, if He did not rise from the dead, our hope is in vain. Why are we even here this morning? It's a waste of time. We are still in our sins. Because in case you didn't figure this out, we are people and people do wrong things. Don't believe me? Turn on your news today. People do wrong things. We all have sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. The resurrection is foundational to our belief. Check this out. It's at the heart of the gospel. My my intent today is to share with you the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Check this out. Paul said, 1 Corinthians, I declared to you the gospel. means the good news. Hey, Paul says, I gave you some good news. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. So Christ is test, uh, Paul is testifying, hey, I've received Christ. I've heard the same gospel, the same good news. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. You see, Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of over a thousand years worth of Scriptures that had been recorded. Over 50 different authors when the whole canon is composed. Over a long period of time. And yet every single one of those prophetic scriptures that were recorded point to Jesus Christ. Christ came into this earth because me and you had a problem. We're sinners. And because of our sin, we were separated from God. There's a big problem. If you and I die in our sin... We are forever, eternally separated from the presence of God. Something had to be done to correct that. Paul says, I declare to you the good news, the gospel, for I deliver to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried. And that He rose again the third day. It's foundational. Guys, the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. It is also a condition of salvation. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We are dead spiritually in our trespasses and sin. That's a big problem. We are spiritually dead. We've got to be made spiritually alive. This, uh, Romans 10 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe, trust in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe this morning that Jesus Christ truly rose from the dead? Never to die again? It's a condition of salvation. uh, There's no hope without it. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 19 says this, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. I mean, this is useless what I'm doing today if He has not been raised from the dead. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. If if Jesus Christ is not risen, then I'm lying to you. This is anyone who preaches the gospel, if it truly didn't happen, they're lying. They're lying about God. There's no hope without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those who also, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. You know what Paul's saying? If, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, this preaching, your faith, is pointless, is useless. How pitiful are you? How sad for us to just go through this life with this false hope and die in our sin. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational. It's it's key to everything in the Christian faith. There's no hope without it. Archaeology. You want some facts 
that Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave. Archaeology supports not only that claim, but the claims of Scripture from the beginning to end. I want to show you some of these facts today. And by the way, let me just say, I'm going to cite my sources here in a little bit. This information uh, is gleaned from, uh, first off, from the Holy Scriptures, but there's also external writings, secular writings, but it's being composed in a couple of books, and I'm going to recommend those to you in a second if you want to know more. Because there is no way that in an hour and a half I'm going to hit on them. I'm just kidding. All right. So, archaeology. Archaeological evidence supports the Bible. As a matter of fact, however, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever... Did you get that? No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And again, if you've been through some of our studies here, you know time and time again we cite this. Every year we do what's called an apologetics conference and we bring in uh, some of the world's finest leading apologists that present evidence upon evidence. We do workshops. Uh, we talk about the, the re- different religions and the comparatives and, and why we believe that the Scriptures is true, why Jesus Christ is the only way. And, and I'm telling you, if you want to know more about that, you should really consider our apologetics conference, Lord willing, coming in September. Archaeological evidence supports the Bible. Here's some examples, and I'm just going to run through these. I'm just going to run through them real quick. Caesar Augustus. Scriptures talk about him. It confirms, check out Luke 2, when Jesus was born. Herod was king when Jesus was born. Matthew 2. Again, all of the historical accounts outside of Scripture. You don't need just Scripture. All the historical evidence supports all of the timelines. Everything is in check. Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Luke 4. Archaeological discoveries. These places have been found. The evidence is there. The Sea of Galilee... Guess what? Still there. Uh, It's where Jesus taught. Again, all of these facts are available. Synagogue at Capernaum, where Jesus taught. That's talked about in Luke 7. Again, archaeological evidence. These aren't just pie-in-the-sky ideas. These aren't things that were just written in some mystical, uh, you know, faith fairy tale. This is real stuff, folks. These are real places. Jerusalem, where Jesus lived, taught and died. Why do you think Jerusalem is at the center of all the controversy? Hey, the Bible talks about it. It tells you all about it. And it's going to remain the hotbed. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Guys, this is not coincidence. This is not just some, well, you know. No, you don't know. Trust me, the Scriptures have prophesied these things. This is fact. Crucifixion. Discovery in Jerusalem. Well, that was just a lucky guess. (laughs) I don't think so. Archaeological evidence supports this. Did you know that if you go back and read Psalm 22, sometime on your own, look at Psalm 22. This is what's called a prophetic psalm. Okay? This psalm is written by David... And it's written like 700 years prior to, plus, before Jesus was on the earth. Isaiah, 
Look at Isaiah 53. You know, a thousand years before Christ is on the earth. Look at these writings. They are very, very detailed about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But how can that be? You're talking 700 years and a thousand years before Jesus is on the earth. Well, you know, Nostradamus did that. No, he didn't. Don't let any history channel or some crazy show on television try and and connect those dots for you. Those things are about as vague as pouring some alphabet soup into your bowl and saying, Hey, look, it's filled out mom. That won't happen. You have a better chance of that than Nostradamus did of getting his predictions right. My point is this. You can go to the scriptures and you can look with great detail. It speaks of his crucifixion, but wait a minute. Crucifixion had not even been invented. The Romans mastered it, but this wasn't even a concept. And yet it's predicted in Psalm 22 to great detail. It speaks of the casting of lots for his garments. And as Christ hung on the cross, the New Testament authors record, this is happening over here. They're casting lots for his garments. It talks about his hands being pierced, his feet being pierced with nails. It speaks of how they plucked his beard. It speaks of how they, they beat him, they bruised him. All of these things are recorded in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Check it out. Again, these historical documents had been in existence for years. This is specific detail, not vague paintings. The evidence is overwhelming. Pontius Pilate, he was the prefect of Judea. Uh, Judea. Say that again. Judea. Man, I'm having a hard time today. Help me out, wife. Matthew 27. You know, a lot of people didn't think Pontius Pilate was truly uh, the leader of this land during that time. Discoveries have since confirmed. You know what else has been confirmed through archaeological discoveries? Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest during this time period. These are things that have been dug up. These are archaeological findings. This is evidence, folks. And I'm just hitting on a handful. Believe me, I've got plenty of books. Feel free to have at them if you want to really take the time and highlight and go through them of other archaeological finds. The point is no archaeological finding has ever contradicted the Scriptures. It's only confirmed it. The site of an empty tomb, like Jesus' tomb. Now, if you go on a tour there, they'll say this is the, they believe this is the tomb. We don't know that for certain. I'm not saying that today. But, again, the tombs, as described in the Scriptures, have been discovered. The fact that they are just like what's been described in Scripture, pretty overwhelming evidence. What about Conflict. How could conflict help support the facts of the resurrection? Because, you know, a lot of people will say, well, hey, look, the Bible's got conflict in it. It's it's got contradicting information. You can't can't believe it. It contradicts. Do you know that um, that actually is a strong piece of evidence that it's true? Well, how's that, preacher? How how, How do you figure that out? Well, check this out. Objection. There are many examples of conflicting testimony in the New Testament. Anybody ever heard somebody say something like that before? The Bible's full of contradictions. Oh, yes, show me one. 
Now, my guess is, and I'm not trying to be smarty pants. Well, maybe in here I am. <laughs> but no, seriously, with the right attitude, if someone ever says to you, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. Try this. Please try this. Lovingly say, really, could you please show me one? Now, in my experience, 9 out of 10 cannot even find a seeming contradiction because, as we'll see in a second, there are, there are a lot of seeming contradictions. That's why that conflict thing is actually good evidence because we're able to look into that a little deeper and find where they don't conflict, they complement. But I can almost... 9 out of 10 times in my life... If someone's made that statement and I've actually said, could you please show me one? Because I've never found one. And if you can show me one, that's very important to me. Because again, guys, I don't want you to believe the Bible just because the preacher says believe the Bible. I don't want a bunch of blind followers. I don't want a bunch of robots who say, well, my preacher told me. Guys, study to show yourself approved. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Don't be a, we, don't, we don't need to be ashamed. All right? We need to rightly divide the word of truth. The evidence is there for us to examine, to explore. Is it just me or is it really hot in here? <laughs> Can I get somebody to cut on a fan or a little something? I see folks waving. I know all these ladies in here that were freezing just now going, Oh, no, please, preacher, No! I'm sorry, folks, please. I, I don't want to pass out because it, well, I was going to say it might cut the sermon short, but some of you may amen. <laughs> so, but if I could get somebody to cut a little air on, that would be great. All right, so here's an objection. There are many examples of conflicting testimony in the New Testament. Well, what's the response? This is a sign of the authenticity of the witnesses. Identical testimony of multiple witnesses raises suspicion of collusion. Carver was my man, Carver. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? If you're in the police law enforcement, he, he, listen, my man knows law work. He knows it. If he's got two witnesses he's drug in and he's uh, asking for, a, for them to give a little testimony and they both line up with great detail the exact same story, he's smelling a rat. Is that correct? Yeah. Look, the fact that these testimonies don't exactly seem to line up detail by detail, line by line, in the same sense. That's evidence, right? Brother Holton, I could have done that if you would just asked me. <laughs> I was thinking AC, but that'll work. We'll get that old-fashioned thing going. I appreciate that. Thank you, brother. All right, evidence number two, Holton Harrison. <laughs> there is a God. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Check this out. Um, there are no real contradictions in the testimony. They are complementary. Again, I do not have time to exhaust these today. I'm just going to throw a couple out at you. Take them in. Go check it out. And again, there's plenty of this type of example. Alright, the inscription on the cross. There are different... In the Gospels, and I see y'all looking at that faded. Don't, don't look ahead. <laughs> I tried my best to get that to go away, but I couldn't do it. All right, the inscription on the cross. Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's the way Matthew reads it. But if you look in Mark, it says, the king of the Jews. Now, a skeptic says this to you. One of those liberal theologians says to you, aha, you see that? Mark says, the king of the Jews. But Matthew says, 
This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. I thought your word was infallible. I thought it was, I thought it was perfect. I thought that uh, you're not to add to or take away from God's word. See, it contradicts. It's not been preserved. People will try and make that kind of argument. Now, that's a ridiculous argument. Check this out. Luke says, this is, he leaves off Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then you've got John saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They don't line up. You see their testimonies, they don't match. It's contradicting. They don't say the same thing. I thought it was the inspired word of God without, you know, I, I, I thought it was, you know, without error. Well, here's some errors right here I'm pointing out. They didn't, they didn't include it. Guess what the whole statement reads when you put it together? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, you're smart people. I don't care if you read what Matthew wrote, Mark wrote, Luke wrote, or John wrote. It says the same thing. It says the same thing. There's no contradiction there. It's complimentary. And again, I'm taking some elementary examples for you, but I can tell you, even with the con, the, the complicated examples that some folks will try and throw out there, believe me, there are great solutions where the Word of God lines up because it is the inspired Word of God. It is infallible, and, and it is without error in the original writings, and we're going to talk about that here in just a second. How about one angel or two angels? i got a confession for you. I was going to preach right here in this place several years ago. And as I was studying and preparing, I ran into a, a how would I say, a uh, conflict in my faith. I mean, I had a real issue because I had come across this in the Scriptures and I couldn't reconcile it. And I knew there had to be some way to reconcile it, but boy, I was struggling because I couldn't find the answer. And I just finally had to come to a place where I said, you know what, God? I don't know the answer on this one. But that's okay. Because I know there's got to be an answer and I trust you. And I know this. You know, God answered that prayer this year. Several years later. And here's one of those things that I wrestled with. Check this out. Matthew 28.5 said, There was one angel at the tomb. But if I read Luke, it said there were two angels there. Resolution, wherever there are two, there is always one. It never fails. (laughs) All right? Yeah, do I feel dumb? Okay. But that wasn't the only thing. That wasn't the only thing. Check this out. One or two angels. Matthew did not say there was only one angel there. Critics, they have to add that to make it air. Oh, you see, Matthew said there was only one angel. No, he didn't. That's not true. That's not a true statement. Since the angels spoke in unison, Luke 24, 5, and again, these were all the texts that I was wrestling through because I was like, wait a minute, how does this line up? How does this fit? Luke 24, 5, and there were two sets of women, verse 10, and only the two Marys went into the tomb, Luke 24, 3, and the two angels were in different places, John 20, 12, then it is likely that they saw both of the angels and that the other women outside saw only one of the two angels. And that makes sense. If you've got two angels talking in unison, Scripture tells you they're talking in unison. 
And two of the women go inside the tomb. They see the one angel. The other women remain outside the tomb. They see the other angel. They're talking in unison. The accounts do not contradict. They very much support one another. It's this type of thing, guys, we've got to study to show ourselves approved because I'm telling you, someone who does not believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead, I'm telling you, they will do their best. They will do their best to talk you out of what you say you believe. And I can say this, if somebody can talk you out of your faith, you don't really have a faith at all. Because a man who's born again cannot be unborn. So, here's some of the information. By the way, again, don't have time to go through all of these. This book is full of examples. It's called the Big Book of, of Bible Difficulties, Norman Geisler. I'm using a lot of Norman Geisler's material today in this presentation. So, if you're enjoying this, gold mine. Gold mine of resources. It's going to be technical. It's going to be heavy. Just know that up front. But if you're interested in that, uh, that's the book you'll want to get. Also, uh, for more facts, Josh McDowell, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Very important book to have on your shelf um, as a Christian if you want answers uh, that, that sometimes Christians struggle with. Uh, as for, again, very technical book. It's going to go into a lot of uh, historical things, extra-biblical things, but it's a great, uh, again, support to the faith. All right. What about the tomb? So we got foundational, we got the archaeological, um, we've got the conflict. What about the tomb? The tomb. The large stone was moved. This stone was estimated to weigh around a, a one and a half tons to two tons. That's not easily moved, folks. Let me, let me read you some things on this, because I, I, want, I want to take a few moments on this section. This comes from Josh McDowell uh, in The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The large stone was moved in spite of the Roman guards and seal. Jesus' tomb was secured in three ways. A large stone was rolled against it. It was customary to roll big stones against tombs. The stones were generally too big to be moved by just a few men. So levers were used to move them. Some have estimated that the stone that sealed Jesus' tomb weighed one and a half to two tons, which is approximate weight of a midsize car. So if any of you want to tempt this in a little while, please wear your back brace. Go check it out in the parking lot. Just don't use my car. Um, <laughs> with six, it won't be a midsize anyway. So, All right. A Roman guard unit. Do you know that there was a Roman guard unit given to guard the tomb? The scriptures speak of this. Roman guards were strictly disciplined fighting men, held to the highest standards. Failure often required death by torturous and humiliating methods if they failed in their given responsibility. The fact that this tomb was empty while there were guards guarding it. By the way, there were probably about four uh, Roman guards guarding this tomb because of all the controversy that was surrounding the death of Jesus. The Roman seal was also fixed 
to the stone that secured the tomb. The seal stood for the power and authority of the Roman Empire. Breaking the seal meant automatic execution by crucifixion upside down. You didn't touch the seal. Anyone trying to move the stone from the tomb's entrance would have broken the seal and thus incurred, incurred the wrath of Roman law. On Resurrection Sunday morning, the first thing that impressed the people who approached the tomb was that the large stone was moved. Certainly the entire guard unit would not have fallen asleep with torture and death as a consequence. Certainly, that would not have happened. But even if the guards did fall asleep, how could thieves have sneaked by the guards and moved the massive stone without waking them up? I mean, people, come on, we're smart. We're smarter than the lies that Satan is feeding this world. But yet we bite hook, long, you know, hook line, and sinker. The question you need to be asking yourself, if you're very antagonistic to the faith of Jesus Christ, you are asking the wrong question. Scoffers and skeptics often ask the wrong questions. They're constantly looking for a new question to stump you. They're constantly looking for a question to trip you up. They're constantly trying to find, aha, aha, aha. The question they need to be asking is, why are they so bent on trying to find the aha question? Why am I so bent on trying to disprove this. Is it possible that because if the Scriptures are true and Jesus Christ is who He claims to be, then you have to stand accountable before Him one day. And that tears you up. I believe that's at the heart of it. I know this because I used to be one of those scoffers. I used to be one of those skeptics. I wanted anything else to be true but the message of this Scripture. And I fought it. And I fought it. Until I was humbled and brought to a place of brokenness and repentance. You know the amazing thing is in spite of my foolishness, in spite of my hard-heartedness, God still gave me mercy. tomb was empty. You know, people could have easily confirmed it wasn't true. I mean, we're talking just a hop, skip, and a jump from Jerusalem. The Passover has just happened. You know, this is a big festival. There's a lot of folks still left in town. And, you know, the word starts spreading that the tomb is empty. Huh? No. Come on, let's go check it out. See? The tomb ain't empty. Look, the stone's still in front of it. There's the guards. There's the seal. Liar, liar, pants on fire. See, that wasn't the case, was it? That wasn't the case. Because both Jewish and Roman sources, they they admitted that the tomb was empty. They admitted that. You can look in the history books. You can look at early historical writings. They tried to work up a plan to explain what happened. Because they knew they were in deep hot water. Let's go that way. 
You follow me? They were in trouble. Oh, man. We're going to have an uprising on our hands if these followers, they were already up. Oh, no, what do we do? I mean, you can just imagine what that must have been like. So what did they do? They tried to bribe those guards. But wait a minute. They were supposed to kill the guards, weren't they? Because they failed at their duty. They failed at their responsibility. But they knew something supernatural had just happened. They could not deny what had taken place. So instead, they tried to dream up this story. We've got to get this straight, guys. We'll say the, the disciples came in in the middle of the night and stole the body. That's what you tell. Anybody ask? That's what you tell them. So they came up with this plan. Think about it, though. The barrel wrappings were in the tomb. If the body were stolen, thieves would not have taken the time to remove wrappings or fold the face cloth. You're talking wrapped like a mummy, 70 pounds worth of uh, spices and ointments and things so that it wouldn't you know, start stinking after a while. We should probably unwrap this and fold it nicely. I'm just a real neat freak. You know, Peter, you go ahead and fold the face cloth and set it over there. It smells a little funky in here. They're not, look, guys, come on, we're smarter than that, aren't we? Witnesses to Jesus' appearances. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 6, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Again, these are all eyewitness accounts. Every one of these people are testifying. They've seen Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They've talked with Jesus. But gain, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. You didn't even have that many people hallucinating at Woodstock. It's not a hallucination. This is evidence. These people saw it. They talked with him. They ate with him. They listened to him preach. And here's the cool thing. Paul says, most of whom remain until now. But some have died. What is Paul saying? In other words, he's saying this. Look, I'm writing this to you, but don't take my word for it. These people are still alive. Go ask them. Go ask them. We've got small children. Some of them were not born when 9-11 happened. But as they are growing older, they ask us questions about what happened on that day. And we're able to tell them. Now, can you imagine though, and I'm just a secondary eyewitness, can you imagine those that were actually there? Those that saw? I mean, again, this is historical facts. If you get caught into a court of law, it only takes one good witness. Conviction. We're talking 500 plus, folks. The evidence is amazing. Think about the followers of Christ. They were persecuted. They were imprisoned. They were killed. 
Why would these people who had displayed such cowardice originally now risk their lives in going from city to city proclaiming the resurrection if they did not truly believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? They hid themselves when Jesus got taken in. Peter denied him three times. Well, I wasn't with him. Beep, beep. Used a few words. I don't know what you're talking about. Denied him three times. They went and hid, locked themselves in a room. They were scared. These guys and gals were hiding. They were depressed. Their teacher, their rabbi is gone. He's dead. They were afraid they were next. Something happened, folks. Something seriously happened to take someone who is scared to death to now boldly going into towns, raising their voice in the squares and compelling people, listen, He's alive! He's risen from the dead! He's coming back! You need to trust Him! Getting stoned to death. Being sawed in half. Being crucified upside down being thrown off of the temple mount. I mean, these are the way people died because they would not back away from what they knew was true. You will not die for a lie. I don't care how strong you think you are. You will not die for a lie. But if you believe you've walked and talked with God incarnate and He has offered you eternal life, this life has nothing to bring it to you, to cause you to be afraid of death. Not when you know eternal life. These people had been, they had been rejuvenated. They, they, were, they were revived in the sense that they knew Christ. They knew He was who He claimed to be. They knew He was alive. And nothing anyone did to them would change that fact. My last point is Scripture. Scripture, one of the most powerful evidences that Jesus truly rose from the dead. Check out the reliability of New Testament documents. Again, this is found in Joshua McDowell's New Evidence that Demands a Verdict. If you'll notice, when it comes to historical documents, no one ever questions whether or not these writings are authentic, whether or not they existed... But look closely at this chart. Plato, does anybody, you know, nobody argues Plato exists, right? My kids play with it every week. I'm just kidding. We know that Plato was a real character. Caesar! Oh, Caesar didn't exist. That was just made up. That's fairy tale stuff. No, no one says that. Do you realize that when it comes to manuscript copies... These are not original documents, all right? You won't find original documents. These things are pretty much destroyed. But what you do find are copies because people copied it, people copied it, people copied it. Notice this. The most manuscript copies beyond the New Testament is Homer's Iliad. 643 copies have been discovered. Here's the problem with Homer's Iliad. 
the earliest copy we can find was about 500 years after the original writing. But nobody questions whether or not there's some errors in it. Maybe they copied it down wrong. You know, because, hey, 500 years later, you're going to have problems, right? You're going to, somebody's going to miscopy it. But nobody really questions that. Check out these other 200 years. Or, I'm sorry, 200 manuscripts, 1,400 years. That's the time gap in years. 200 copies. Eight, seven, 20, 10, 7. That's how many manuscript copies have been found. It's not a whole lot. And look at the years, the gaps, the, the, the earliest copies. You can trace it back to that. But guys, look at the New Testament. We have almost 5,000, I think now it's actually almost 5,800, but there's, because they're constantly discovering new manuscripts in their archaeological digs. Remember Qumran back in 1948, they found in the cave all of those preserved writings, copies of scriptures. There is over 5,700 manuscripts, copies of the New Testament that have been found. And we can date it back to 25 years after the original. So my point is this. People could have said, that's not true. That's not true. Because they would have still been alive. 5,700 plus manuscripts? Why is this not being taught in every history class around the world? It's the most historical document in existence. Nothing even begins to enter into the same arena. I'll tell you why it's not being taught. Because it's the Word of God and Satan who's talked about in Scripture is blinding the minds of people in the world because he is doing his best to make sure people die without knowing Jesus Christ and spend eternity in hell. So he can say, aha, I got some. People are buying into the lie when they're not looking at the evidence that says God is alive. He loves you. He's real. And He wants to know you. Total number of manuscripts. That was just the Greek, by the way. 5,700. That's just how many we found in the language of the time in which Jesus and Paul started writing. It was the Koine Greek. It was the common language of the day. But guess what? As it got copied, it went into other continents, other countries all around the world. And now check out how many manuscripts have been discovered. I mean, this is blown off the chart. There is over 25,000 manuscripts that have been discovered around the world. This is facts, folks. This is overwhelming evidence. Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be. By the way, the Old Testament is well over that as well. And manuscript evidence has been found. Total norm, This is amazing to me. The total number of early citations. Early citations of the New Testament. So just imagine, you've got all these early church folk, and you've got these people who do not believe Jesus was truly God, but they recognize something went on, and they write letters to their friends, and they, they decide to cite a scripture. They cite a scripture in their letters, they, they, they cite a letter, uh, they cite scripture in their books they write. Early church fathers also wrote, 
and they would write commentaries and they would write these things. And so we've also found these archaeological finds. We've also dug up this information. We've also found these things. And do you know out of all of the citations, people just quoting the New Testament, just quoting the New Testament. We have so much quotes, so many quotes from all of these letters that if we took those quotes and put them together, we would only lack 11 verses to compose the New Testament. I hope you really got what I tried to explain. If not, you look real closely at that chart because, gang, that is phenomenal. That tells me that early people, again, knew this was some serious stuff going on, so much that they wrote about it, so much that if we just pulled from them, we'd be able to put our New Testament back together, minus 11 verses. Phenomenal. But yet... That's religion. We need to keep that in the religion class, not the history class. You show me a historical document that even begins to compare. There's none. There is none. What if you receive this message? You have won $10 million. Okay, now imagine it was really from a reputable source. (laughs) I don't know about you, but uh, I would collect the money. All right? Oh, wait a minute. There's an error. There's an error in that. It's not true. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang tight. What if you you receive this message? You have won $10 million. You have won $10 million. Now you're even more sure. Oh, look, there's a conflict. There's variance in the text. What, if you received this message, you would have no doubt. You have won $10 million. You have won $10 million. You have won $10 million. Or you have won $10 million. <laughs> Note, even with mistakes, 100% of the message comes through. The more errors, the more sure you are of the message. The Bible has less copy errors than this. Here's the point, guys. If you look at this statistically and do, you know, your math, and you look at the errors here and you say, well, there's there's errors, there's 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 variance in the text. We can't trust those. There's copying mistakes in the New Testament. You can't trust it. Oh, but I'm sure you're going to trust that if you got that from Publishers Clearinghouse, no matter what the typo was. You've won $10 million. The King James Version. Thou hast won $10 million. <laughs> By the way, the first one was the, uh, the uh, New American Standard Bible. The second one is the King James, and the last one is the Rick James. <laughs> Y'all have won $10 million. Are these three messages different? Now, there's always some smarty in the crowd that says, yes. No, they're not. They're not. They tell you the same thing. Guys, don't get caught up. This is a side note. Don't get caught up in whether or not it says thee, thou, or... The message is still, yeah, or y'all, amen. The yo rap version, you know, y'all. Anyway. The message is not lost. The truth is conveyed. That's the key. Don't get caught up because you're focusing too much on, well, this doesn't say that. 
Of 27 letters in line 2, only 5 are in the, uh, uh, in the words in line 3. So you're looking at 18.5%. Yet the message is identical. They're different in form, but not in content. Even with the differences, 100% of the messages, 100% of the message comes through. Many New Testament manuscript variations are of this kind. Do you realize a lot of times they didn't put Jesus, they put He with a capital H. That's one of those variances. Sometimes they, they may have, uh, again, put in... It, it's, those are minor, minor variations that never change the content of the passage. Testimony of the scrolls. There are better New Testament manuscripts. The New Testament, compared to most other books, again, these are some of the leading books. And if you do this type of analysis on it, you, the best you're going to find is 90 to 95% accuracy in the copies of the other. But yet when it comes to the New Testament, and believe me, a lot of people a lot smarter than me have done these studies and researches, 99.9% accurate. Why? Because somebody wants to give a point one because they didn't put Jesus and put He here, and so therefore there's some kind of variant conflict. Guys, our evidence is amazing. Conclusion. There is more evidence that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead than for any event from the ancient world. It's not just a good story. It is good history. In the words of Sai, it's a fact, Jack. <laughs> Handful of you got that, Duck Dynasty fans only. The rest of you didn't. <laughs> Folks... Easter is not just a holiday. It's a reality. And let me just say, if it's a reality, Jesus Christ is alive. And He promised He is coming back. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. If this is reality, why are we living a fantasy? Why are we living a lie? Shouldn't we be living for the only thing that really matters? If we call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ as believers, believers, shouldn't our life be purposeful? reality he died for our sins he was buried and three days later he rose from the grave he's defeated death we don't need to fear death that's a step into eternity if you know Jesus Christ into the eternity of life. Eternal life begins at the moment you receive Christ. And so when you simply leave this physical address, you step into the presence of the Lord forever. But to reject the only means by which you can be saved, the only way that you can be forgiven, if you reject that, you will stand one day in the holy presence of God and you will stand in your guilt and your shame. And there will be no second chance. And you'll hear the words, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you.
and eternal separation in the lake of fire which burns forever and ever and ever. Guys, that's not a scare tactic. That is a reality check. And the reality is Christ is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Evidence, Jesus rose from the dead. I'm supposed to say from, not for, but you know. It's a variant. <laughs> it's a typo. Alright. The tomb was empty with grave clothes in it. Over 500 witnesses saw Him 12 times plus. They touched His physical body. They saw His crucifixion scars. They ate with Him four times. He taught them for 40 days. He did miracles for them. He transformed them from cowards to martyrs overnight. He's risen. Jesus has defeated death. Why is Jesus the only way? Because He's 100% God and He was 100% man. He's the God-man. And because only the God-man can bridge between God and man, that's why Jesus is different from any other religious leader. No other religious leader has gone to the grave and rose victorious over death never to die again. Check the other tombs. They're still there. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, what a glorious day we celebrate today. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good news. Christ paid for our sins. I owed a debt I could not pay. My sin separated me from you, Lord. And yet you demonstrated your love to me while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. And not just for me, Lord, but for everyone here. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray if there is a soul here today that has never come to the point of brokenness and surrender, where they've turned from their sin and turned to the cross at Calvary and said, Lord, forgive me, Jesus, I believe. I believe You are who You claim to be. I believe that You did die on a cross for my sin. I believe you were buried and I believe you rose three days later just as you said. And I believe you are the way and the truth and the life. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me my sin. By faith today, I want to receive Christ to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm tired of my life. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want the forgiveness of God. I need desperately the forgiveness of God. I want to be made a new creation in Christ. God, please save me from my sin. If that is your prayer today, if that is your cry, you call out to Jesus Christ. He said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
simple childlike faith. Receive Christ today. To them who receive Him, He gives the right to become the children of God. You know, when I got married, I told my wife, I do. And I did. I said, I do. That word believe is is like saying, I do. I do believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I do commit my life to Christ. If you're taking that step of faith this morning for the first time, would you be bold enough to say, that's me. I'm asking Christ to save my soul today. Would you raise your hand? Lift it high. Don't be ashamed. Christ is... Thank you. Anyone else? Today I'm calling upon Christ. I've cried out to the Lord to save my soul. Would you lift your hand? Pull it back down. Anybody? Nobody looking around. Nobody looking around. Today I'm calling upon Christ to forgive me of my sin, to make me a new creation in Him. I believe He rose from the dead. I believe He's God and I believe He's coming back. And I want to put my faith and my trust in Him. If that's you... Throw your hand up and put it back down. I see that hand. Thank you. Praise God. Anybody else? Anyone else? I want to cast my cares on Him. I know He cares for me. I know He loves me. And He's demonstrated that love on the cross at Calvary. I need Christ. That's you. The invitation's open. You know, the great thing is the invitation's open until your breath is gone. And we're not promised tomorrow. The Spirit of God will not always strive with man. But if you're hearing His voice calling you today, you need to respond. I'm going to ask Brother Dean and Miss Bobby, if y'all would slip out to the back of the church. No one else looking around. Real quick, we're just going to close this out. If I could ask Miss Bobby and Mr. Dean, if you would go out into the to the right front of the library. I'm going to give an invitation here in just a second for those who would like to go out and counsel and to know from God's Word how you can have your account settled, how you can be certain of your salvation. Uh, and, and Miss Bobby and Mr. Dean are going to show you from God's Word how you can get this settled today. Maybe you didn't raise your hand. Maybe for whatever reason you couldn't. You've been presented with the facts. Don't leave here Buying the lie of Satan and allowing your soul to be eternally separated. If you raise your hand and you need Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can ask somebody to go with you. But I'm going to ask you to go ahead and step out. Nobody looking around. Just go ahead and make your way to the back. Mr. Uh, Dean and Miss Bobby are going to show you from God's Word how to be sure of your salvation, to know that your sins are forgiven. You'll have a home in heaven. Just go right ahead. You can ask your mom or your neighbor, your brother, your sister, whoever to go with you. If you don't have anybody to go, that's fine. You just go. Just go ahead and step out of your seat. Nothing to be afraid of. God loves you. He's just wanting to give you the assurance that you can have confidence in Him and trust in Him to know that these things are forgiven. Go ahead. It's all right. Even if nobody goes, thank you. Praise the Lord. I'm proud of you, young man. Somebody else, be brave enough. And a child shall lead them. Go ahead. Anyone else? Go ahead. You, maybe you didn't raise your hand. Just step on out, folks. This is, this is good stuff. This is what we're here for. This is Resurrection Sunday. Some of us need to rise up. Some of us need to rise up and rededicate our life to Christ. 
Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation. Thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior who we celebrate today and hopefully every day. And Lord, for those of us, for whatever reason, maybe we're not able to go out, maybe we didn't want to talk, that's fine. Lord, I pray though their hearts commune with you. They'll get along with you and they'll get things settled and they'll share that with someone so that they can begin to grow and be encouraged in their walk. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit moves upon the hearts of man today. And Lord, for us that are believers, may we revisit the resurrection in our own heart and life. And may we be raised to new life in the sense of better service, more committed, faithful following. Forgive us our sin. We thank you, Lord. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Guys, thank y'all. This was a special...